You're listening to the Sunday morning message from Clouds Creek Baptist Church. Join us for worship Sunday morning at 11. Or for more information, visit cloudscreek.org. Good morning. All right, y'all. I got one of the best stories in the whole Bible to read this morning, so I'm excited for this. A little tired. I look a little red, like a lobster. I got sunburned good yesterday, y'all. Well, we're going to do this. I'm excited. We're coming out of Exodus 13 and 14 today, the end of 13 and all of 14. And I got to give y'all some backstory while y'all are turning to it over here. For those who haven't uh, been with us for this whole series, I suppose, what you need to see that has happened. So we had this, this up-and-coming nation that was in Egypt, the Israelites, a long time ago. And these people, they were growing more and more and more in number. And the, the, the Egyptians feared them. They were afraid of them getting too numerous and what that would mean if they ever went to war with them. And so the Egyptians enslaved them back in the first part of Exodus. And in these bonds of slavery, the Israelites continued to grow in numerous. And as they grew, they groaned under this slavery. This wasn't easy on them. They, they struggled with, with what they were going through, and they called out to God. And the Bible tells us their cries went up before God. He heard them. And God put into motion this plan to send Moses his chosen servant, to Egypt and declared to Pharaoh to let his people go. Anyone who's watched the, the Prince of Egypt cartoon, y'all got all that. It's an excellent movie. But he sent his, uh, his servant Moses to Egypt. We had ten plagues take place. We had something impossible happen. The Israelite people could not free themselves from the Egyptians. But through God's divine acts, they were freed anyway. He saved his people and brought them up out of Egypt. And they left triumphantly. And the Bible tells us they plundered the Egyptians as they went and marched out in battle formation. It must have been an amazing sight to see. And before we get to the text today, I want to think about how this can be applied in our own lives for just a moment. Because weren't we once enslaved to something that we could not break free from? Weren't we born into this, this, evil, this evil system of sin that we were powerless to break ourselves out of? And didn't God, through His divine act, call us out of it too? Bring us triumphantly out of that. Saving us just like he saved his people back here in Egypt and, and pulled them free from the bonds of the Egyptians. Because I need us to see that for us to be able to ask the right question this morning going into this. And that is, what happens next? Sort of that, you know, now what question. And as with that, I need to pick up for us over here and... and Chapter 13, verse 17. Turn the page to get to the right spot. Oh, there it is. When Pharaoh let the people go, 
God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. For God said, the people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. So he led the people around towards the Red Sea, along the road of the wilderness, and the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath saying, God will certainly come uh, to you to your aid. Then you must take my bones with you from this place. And they set out from Sakoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and in a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. I want to stop there for just a second. For this now what question? What happens after we've been saved? What happens after he called his people out of Egypt and they left? Well, the first thing I want us to see is God is still with them and God still cares for his people. I mean, right off the bat here, he's talking about the quick route over to the promised land of Canaan would have been through the land of the Philistines. The Philistines were, were fighters. This was a scary people. This was a people with giants, as we would later see in Scripture. But you know what? God's bigger than the Philistines. I know he just did all those acts in Egypt, but he's not exhausted. He's not done and out. He can still go beat the Philistines as well if he wanted to. But he's not concerned about whether or not he could get them through the land of the Philistines. He's concerned about the morale of his people. He doesn't want to take them into war. He's concerned for the well-being of his people. He's looking out for those that he has saved. And not only that, did he plan the destination and did he plan the route, he himself is going to lead his people there. He is in front of them in this pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night, guiding them to where they need to go, showing them the right route. Because it's not just any old way to get to your destination. And I, I love the idea right there that he's changing based on their needs. You know, a pillar of cloud at night wouldn't do a whole lot of good, would it? They'd have a hard time following that. A pillar of fire by day may be a little hot to follow through the desert. But because the people need him this way to lead them, he's leading them that way. This is a beautiful picture right here of God going above and beyond to take care of his people. And I find, think we can find he does the very same thing for us. Because though we don't have a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, we have a good shepherd, don't we? Who takes us exactly where we need to go. I know I talk a lot about the good shepherd when I get in front of y'all, but to me that's one of the most exciting things to think about in scripture right there, that he knows the right way and the right course every time, and that's the way he's taking us. But you know, he could have easily, in this pillar of fire, or pillar of cloud, could have appointed one of his angels to do that, couldn't he? He could have easily delegated that to someone else. Or, you know, the, the Bible tells us that he has legions of angels. Or if he really needed to, he could have created something brand new to do the job for him. 
He is God after all. But the fact that he himself leads his people, I think that speaks tons, speaks loads to just how loving and caring he is for his own. But I'm not going to stall there much longer here. Let's go forward and see what else we got to stay the same. I'm going to read uh, over in 14. We'll pick up in verse 5 and we'll go through uh, 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about, what, about the people and said, What have we done? We have released Israel from serving us. So he got his chariots ready and his, took his troops with him. He took 600 of the best chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt with officers in each one. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out triumphantly. The Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army, chased after them and caught up with them as they uh, camped at the sea of Phihahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and saw the Egyptians coming after them. Then the Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. And they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you took us to die in the wilderness? What have you done? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation. He will provide for you today. For the Egyptians you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You must be quiet. All right. I like the ending part of that, but we've got to start about the beginning of that first. The enemy is still there, isn't he? Pharaoh was defeated. He doesn't own the Israelites anymore. They've already come up out of Egypt. We read that back in chapter 13. They're getting ready to you know, make for the land of Canaan over here. And Pharaoh comes after them again anyway. Even though they're out of his, his dominion, he's coming for them. And he, he has the strangest thing said right here. Because when I read at the beginning right there, Pharaoh's officials told him that um, the people had fled. I mean, doesn't that just sound weird? Is that how you describe a people who triumphantly marched out in battle formation and plundered Egypt as they went? Did they flee? Is, is that how you would call that? I see, I see Pharaoh has something in common with our enemy, and he likes to twist what happened. And he asked the questions over here, you know, what have we done? It's a good question, Pharaoh. What did you do? I thought you experienced ten plagues. When I read this right here, it's as if Pharaoh's ask, uh, thinking that, that they just let Israel go. It's as if they're not considering what just took place. Like they're diminishing what God just did. Now being that the Israelites meandered a bit, I'm not saying this is the following day after the 10th uh, the plague. But surely this isn't very long after. I mean, we may be talking a week or two or so 
something small in range right here. There's no way Pharaoh could have forgotten the firstborn of every household in Egypt just died. And yet he wants to go back and get them anyway. And his magicians have failed him. His gods have failed him. He's going to give the army a try this go-around and see if they can come over and take it. Now, when I read the size of his force there, it seems a bit strange to me. It says he took 600 of his best chariots and the rest, it does say, and the rest of the chariots in Egypt. Now, I don't know how many and the rest is, but I'm hoping it's a lot more than the 600 spoken about at the beginning there because Israel is a nation that is moving here. We see in Scripture that it says Israel has 600,000 soldiers marching with them here and their families. So if Israel, each of the soldiers have a wife and a child, Israel's looking at roughly 2 million people. So I don't know what the plan of 600 chariots was, but it says he took the rest of that was in Egypt as well. I don't think the point here, though, is that Pharaoh is coming out with a great battle plan. I don't think Pharaoh's coming out necessarily to be victorious. I think he's just coming again, as Pharaoh's coming against them. And if we think in our own lives, again, because I want us to keep thinking back to what God has done for us in this. He brought us out of sin, but does that mean that sin and the evil one has left us alone? Does that mean he's given up on bothering us? Our temptation's just done and, and gone away for? Because it's not. We may not be under Satan's dominion. We may not be under sin's dominion anymore. But that doesn't mean that it's going to leave us alone. And Pharaoh here, though, he pursues them. And the people that were just marching in battle formation triumphantly, they see off in the distance coming these horses and they panic. They're thinking about all the bad that's about to happen. Nothing bad is happening at the moment to them, if you noticed. They see Pharaoh coming. I suppose they may hear horses coming, but it's not here. Nothing is going wrong for them. God has led them with a pillar of fire and cloud to this exact spot they are standing. I, I glossed over the part earlier where he tells them, using landmarks of where they need to be, and they're there, and yet the people are freaking out. Look at this army coming, y'all. And look at what they say. This is crazy to me here. Because just as Pharaoh seemed to downplay God, so too his people seemed to be downplaying him in this story here. They put over here, uh, losing my spot. <laughs> Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you took us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Is that all they see? Do they see slavery or death? Is that what their choices are here? Do they not know who has brought them to this place they are standing at? Who has promised them so much more? Do they think this is Moses' plan? Like, yes, I will gather all the Israelites up out of Egypt to come die right here by the Red Sea. Is that what they thought was taking place? I mean, that just sounds silly, doesn't it? But they're not thinking rationally here. 
They see horses coming and they're panicking. And then they're blaming Moses, aren't they? What have you done to us, Moses? Didn't we tell you to leave us alone that this was going to happen? Oh, man. I don't know if y'all have ever been blamed for something, but it doesn't feel good, does it? I get defensive, like instantly defensive. When someone comes attacking me for something, I've got to give an excuse of why I did it or a defense of how I didn't think this was going to happen or some reasoning why this is still better than not doing it. i got to come up with something, right? i got to defend my actions. This is normally me at work, but i got to defend my actions of what I just decided to do. But not Moses. Because Moses, he's the only one we see in this picture here who still has his head on straight. He tells them, well, he tells them at the end to be quiet, but before that, he tells them, stand firm and see the Lord's salvation. Now, I like that right there. He ain't backing up an inch. And he ain't telling them that God needs their help to save them either, is he? I mean, Moses could have said, we got to get to the other bank over there. Y'all start swimming. That way, when God steps in, we ain't got as far to go. He didn't need to do that. He didn't say God's got to warm up and stretch first. Y'all go back there and stall the Egyptian army. He'll be here in a minute. That wasn't it either. He told them, wait, just, just wait right there. God's going to save us. Just wait and watch. That's all you got to do. See the Lord's salvation. I don't know about y'all, but that preaches to me personally right there. When the going gets tough and there's so much happening and you feel like you're just caving under the pressure... Think about it for a moment. Just, just wait. Just stop. Trust the Lord. He's got this. He's always got this. And so then I want to read for you all the next part here. We're all going up to verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? By the way, y'all, that's, that's an excellent question. Do y'all not trust? Did I just bring y'all here? Why are y'all crying out to me now? We're good. All right, here we go. Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. For I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh all his army and his chariots and horsemen. For the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going in front of the Israelite forces, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud was moved from in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptians and the Israelite forces. The cloud was there in the darkness, yet lit up the night. So neither group came near the other all night long. Oh, two more. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. And the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. All right, here we go now, y'all. The pillar that was guiding them this whole way went and got between them and their enemy. God literally positions himself between us 
and what was coming after us. He stood in the way right there. And in my translation, the Christian standard here, it sounds a bit confusing when it said that the cloud was there in the darkness, yet it lit up the night. If you're reading an NIV, I like it the way it sounds a bit better there, is it lets you, us know that the cloud was bringing darkness to the Egyptians and light to the Israelites. It's that same mentality we see later in Scripture where it talks about how Jesus, you know, is our firm foundation and our cornerstone, but he's also a stumbling block to others for those who aren't accepting him. It's that same idea right there that the very salvation that has been given to us that we can cling to and hold fast to, that's something that, that others that don't have, well, I'm not going to go far down that road. That's a, a sad road at the moment. But what we see right here nonetheless is God protecting his people. He gets between the two forces here. And then he tells Moses to do the impossible. Now, there's a lot of ways God could have done this. He could have had them all walk on water. He could have teleported them all to the other side. God could have sent the uh, Egyptians back home. He could have done anything he wanted to do here. But so that everyone would know that God saved his people here. So that everyone would see the glory of God. Because he talks about his glory here a good bit. He tells Moses to hold your hand out. And he parts the sea. And as we just said, there were possibly a couple of million people here that are going to pass through this thing in this one night. So he didn't give us a four-foot gap. That wasn't going to cut it. He had to part the sea in some meaningful size and way for a nation of old people and young people and people holding all these goods they just plundered from Egypt to be able to cross through to the other side. Mm. But you know, I, I want us to, to really picture this in, in a better way, and I'm terrible at describing and explaining things. So I want to flip over real quick to Psalm 77. The psalmist over here, he's going to paint a picture for us of this event. And uh, being that it's a psalm, it may very well be that it's a, a colorful mm, reimagining, if you will, because the Psalms are poetry and they're meant to convey a truth to us, not necessarily the historical appearance of something. But I want to read for you just 16 through 20 here. Listen to these words, y'all. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you, they trembled. Even the depths shook. The clouds poured down water, the storm clouds thunder. Your arrows flash back and forth. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Lightning lit up the world. The earth shook and quaked. Your way went through the sea. Your paths through the great waters. But your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Just picture that for a moment there of what we must have seen. What took place right there before the Israelites, as the incredible happened. Now, I imagine if you and I were standing there, we would be wide-eyed, we'd be excited, we'd be all giddy, right, of what was going on, because we're reading about this historically speaking. The Israelites 
we're most definitely a little less excited and a little more terrified of what just took place. We see over in Hebrews when it talks about this event right here, it declares this as an act of faith that they stepped out into the, the, uh, the ground at the bottom of the, the sea here. And I think that's a good description of what they had to do here. They stepped out on faith to go between these two walls of water. But they went, and God told them to go, and through they went. And in one night, they moved to the other side. And then somehow, some way, Pharaoh's forces are no longer impeded by the darkness. I'm not going to say they cut through the darkness, but it doesn't say expressly what took place here. They're no longer being held behind the darkness, and they're going to come after the Israelites again. And they're going to run through the walls of water. I'm going to pick back up for us over here. We are going through uh, 23 through 27 in chapter 14 of Exodus. The Egyptians set out in pursuit. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen, they went into the sea after them. Then during the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw them into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so the waters may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord overthrew them in, in the sea. All right. Y'all, that's one of the most terrifying passages I could tell y'all about in the Bible. And it's not made any less terrifying by the lack of specific information here. What we see happen here is the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and he confused the Egyptians and they realized something that the Lord was fighting against Egypt, that God was fighting against them. And the reason this is terrifying here is there's a handful of times in Scripture when someone realizes they're in the presence of God. And this happens with Isaiah. When Isaiah is in the presence of God, he declares that he is undone. This is, this is unraveling Isaiah, the man here, the prophet here, God's chosen teacher in the world. When Peter realized who Jesus was, he fell down and said he was unworthy. And those were two men that God was coming after favorably. Those were two men who were doing it as good as it could have been done. The Egyptians here found themselves to some extent that I don't know specifically in the presence of God. And they were his enemies. So when they freak out and they try to run declaring that God is fighting against Egypt I'm glad I don't have to see that one but it was too late for Moses was told to hold his hand back out over the sea and shortly after that the sea was calm again restored to the way it was supposed to be and the Egyptian army those 600 chariots, plus however many else was in Egypt that came, and Pharaoh and all that were simply gone. And the story here is going to go on to tell us that the, the dead were on the seashores. 
So what we can see happened here is that God did indeed save his people again. He got them out of Egypt, but Egypt didn't let them go. And he stopped it again. But you know what? Their problems aren't done here because they're going to continue to go out into the wilderness here. They're going to continue to find more and new and crazier problems as they go throughout Israel's existence. And each time it looks bleak and it looks dire. But we see again and again and again in Scripture God coming to fight for his people. My favorite one is still over there in Jehoshaphat where he tells the the people not to do anything because tomorrow the battle is mine. I like the phrase, God will continue to fight for his people as he always has us at heart. And so with that today, I want our application from this lesson to be, I want what we're, we're thinking about this, that if we are God's children, if we are the Lord's people, then we're going to have difficult times. We're going to have problems we don't have answers to. We may feel like our back is to a sea and an army is breathing down our necks. But we still have God and he's mightier than all that. And he's willing to get between us and our problems and he's willing to save us from our problems again and again and again. Because that's just what our father does. So to answer the question at the very beginning here of what now? What happens next after salvation? The answer to that is everything. Everything that God has in store and in mind for us lays in front of us. The path ain't always the direct one to it, but he knows the right path and he's taking us there and protecting us the whole way. And so with that in mind, let's trust him. Let's follow him. No matter what. Let's pray, y'all. Father, thank you for what you've done, what you did over in the, the land of Egypt to show us your mercy and your grace, to show us your glory and your power, Lord, of how not only do you care for us, you watch out for us, and you watch over us and keep us safe. Lord, thank you for the knowledge that we can experience that as well. So God, I pray that you go with us and you guide us. You let us boldly live and stand for you, trusting that every moment you've already thought through and you've already figured out. In your name we pray, dear Lord. Amen.